Welcome to Songcraft, Spotlight on Songwriters. I'm Paul Duncan. And I'm Scott B. Bomar. Songcraft brings you conversations with and about the men and women who've put pen to paper, hands to keyboards, and fingers to strings to create lyrics and music that stand the test of time. You probably know the names, and you definitely know the songs. We bring you the stories. Keep up with us via Facebook, Twitter, or our website by searching for one word, Songcraft Show. While Songcraft is always free, if you believe in our mission of preserving and presenting these important conversations, we invite you to visit our Patreon page at patreon.com slash songcraftshow. There you can help support us with a voluntary monthly pledge that will also give you access to bonus content and other extras as our way of saying thanks for your continued support. You're listening to Tonight, 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 co-written by Genesis co-founder and keyboardist Tony Banks, who is our guest on this episode of Songcraft, and will join us to chat about his lengthy career with Genesis, his solo work, and his brand new classical orchestral album entitled Five. First, we dive deep into the small handful of albums that have yielded five or more hit singles, and spoiler alert, Genesis is on that list. Part one. Man, it's crazy how successful Genesis is. Yeah. Uh, Our kind of era of when we were kids, I mean, the Invisible Touch album was enormous. That was 1986. It was everywhere. It yielded five top five singles. Jeez. And... It got me kind of thinking. I was like, okay, so this album has yielded five top five singles. Are there other albums that have achieved the same feat? Hmm. And, um, you know, you know me. I did what I do. I I did a little research on it. And so I wanted to... And you uh, know me. I didn't. (laughs) (laughs) So, But you're more entertaining than I am, so I wanted to talk to you about these these albums that have yielded five or more top five singles i know one right away yeah yeah all right so i'm gonna quiz you a little bit all right um i'll get one and uh well first of all tell me the one you think you know george michael faith that is correct i know that i know that i mean that's like a stat that i cite yeah in fact that had six top five singles yeah kissing kissing a fool is the one that people forget yes and well you really know you're george michael i do i can tell you what they are monkey one more try faith father figure um Kissing, kissing. Oh, uh, wait, monkey. One more try. Faith, father. I want your sex. Right. And then uh, kissing a fool was the other one. Wow. Yeah. Dude, I those know. were not in order of release, but otherwise pretty impressive. Uh, it would have been <laughs> faith. No, I want your sex. Then faith. <laughs> then uh, one more try. And father figure. Then one more try. Then monkey. Then kissing a fool. Wow. I'm right, right? <laughs> you are right. That's insane. Okay. That yeah. was not staged, folks. I, I, I am legitimately. I can't tell you what away. I did yesterday. <laughs> okay, so there have been eleven albums okay. in the in the history of music. Which is staggering. <clears throat> that have that have achieved or that have yielded five top five singles in the United States on the Billboard Pop Charts. So okay. only eleven albums. Now, one of them is Genesis, of course. We already yeah. know that. So okay. there's there's 10 others. But here's the thing. Even though there are 11 albums that have done it, there's only nine artists that have done it, Ooh. which means that two artists have done it twice. So my my trivia question to you is, can you name the two artists that have done it twice? Michael Jackson. That's correct. Oh, man. Um... I'll give you a hint. Okay. The other one is related to Michael Jackson. Janet? Yep. Wow. Yeah. I was, yeah. All right, I was I was gonna say Whitney Houston, but 
yeah. No, Whitney Houston's not even on the list. Oh, Control has got to be one of them. Yeah, Control, Control, and uh, Rhythm Nation. Nation. Yeah. Yeah. So so one family is responsible for four of only 11 albums that have ever yielded five top five singles. That's insane. Isn't it? So the very first time that an album ever yielded five top five singles is, as you probably guess, Thriller. Thriller, yeah. Yeah. 1982. Yeah. Uh, Thriller was released in 1982. That was the first time that there was ever... Uh, an album that, that yielded five top five singles. And in fact, it yielded seven top ten singles. So that was what you call a success. That's ridiculous. Um, so then uh, the other interesting thing is that it never happened in the 1990s. Hmm. Uh, eight of the times that it happened were between 1986 and 1989. And it had only happened twice since then. So you basically had Michael in 1982. Yeah. Then in the 2000s, uh, it happened a couple times. One was Fergie, The Duchess, 2006. Uh, wow. Uh, and another one's after that? And then the other one's after that. 2010. 2010. Wow. Um, dude, this is where it begins to challenge me. I'm yeah. trying to think what would have been like the biggest record of that era. I've got to think. Did Bruno Mars have? It's a female artist. I mean, I would say Adele. That was the biggest album that I remember from that era. Nope. It is actually Katy Perry. Oh, well. Katy Perry, Teenage Dream. All right. That makes all the sense in the world. Yeah. Yeah. So. Firework, uh, Roar. And here's what's interesting about that. Not only is Katy Perry the 11th album to yield uh, five top five singles, it is the second album in history to actually yield five number one singles. So not only were these... uh, were these albums, you know, all top five hits? But I mean, all those, the singles top five hits, those were all number ones. Now, only Jeez. one artist before her ever did this, where all five of those actually went to number one. And I guess you could probably guess. It's got to be Michael Jackson. He's, yeah. Yeah. I- anytime there's like an only guy to ever do such and such, it's got to be Michael Jackson. <laughs> right. The Bad Album was the first time that there were, uh, that there were. You're talking about Bad, I Just Can't Stop Loving You, Man in the Mirror, um, Dirty Diana. Yep. Uh, and one more. Uh, oh, the way you make me feel. Yeah, yeah, man, impressive. Yeah. You know your, you know your '80s music. I do. Yeah, so. I, it, and it's probably an indictment on my currency that you said about 2010. <laughs> I'm like, oh. Uh. <laughs> so a quick rundown: yeah. uh, the albums that have that have achieved the feat: Michael Jackson, Thriller; Janet Jackson, Control; Madonna, True Blue; mm. Genesis, Invisible Touch; Michael Jackson, Bad; George Michael, Faith. Paula Abdul, Forever Your Girl. This next one will surprise you because there's not really a group. Millie Vanilli, Girl, You Know It's True, 1989. (laughs) Uh, I can tell you those, (laughs) unfortunately. (laughs) Janet Jackson, Rhythm Nation. Um, That was the first album to yield seven top five singles. Jeez. Yeah, and I think to this day might be the only album that has ever yielded seven top five singles. I know that there's only three albums in, in history that have ever yielded seven top ten singles, which is that Janet album... Uh, Michael Jackson Thriller and uh, Bruce Springsteen Born in the USA Wow Bruce Springsteen has never had a number one single That's crazy too Right? Yeah so back to the list Fergie uh, which I mentioned and of course Katy Perry So you're talking about the bulk of these 8 of the 11 were between 1986 and 1989 Which is like this weird wow. golden era But here's the other thing I noticed about this I-, I-, I think that you know Culture wars aside I think regardless of your uh, political ideas then we could all pretty much agree that straight white men have kind of been the the dominant force 
in in history, right? Yeah, uh, I mean, recent history for sure. Not when it comes to uh, right to albums that have that have yielded five top five singles. Wow. In fact, Genesis is the only group on the list of straight white men. If you want to narrow it down to straight white American males, no representation on this list. Well, just one little caveat. Everybody thought George Michael was straight at the time of faith. They thought he was at the time. That's so true. That's he, true. He entered the radio charts as a straight white male. <laughs> <laughs> right. <laughs> right. Yeah. So so I, I, I think that uh, the representation of women and uh, people of color on this list, especially considering that it, most of it yeah. happened in the 80s. I think maybe uh, the the world of music is a little bit uh, a little bit more forward thinking. Music's always been that. Yeah, and let's yeah. hope always will be. Yeah. Part two. Grammy winner Tony Banks is the co-founder and keyboardist of Genesis, which helped define prog rock in the '70s with lead singer Peter Gabriel, and emerged as a pop powerhouse in the '80s after drummer Phil Collins took over the lead vocalist role. Banks and Mike Rutherford were the only two musicians who were members of the band throughout Genesis' entire history from the late 1960s through the early 2000s. He is a co-writer of Genesis classics, including The Knife, The Musical Box, Supper's Ready, Firth of Fifth, Follow You, Follow Me, No Reply at All, That's All, Invisible Touch, Throwing It All Away, Land of Confusion, Tonight, 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 In Too Deep, No Son of Mine, I Can't Dance, and Hold On My Heart. In addition to releasing five solo albums, Banks began scoring films in the late 1970s, including a British horror movie called The Shout, a science fiction film entitled Starship, and Quicksilver, starring Kevin Bacon. It was his work on the Faye Dunaway film The Wicked Lady that first exposed Banks to working with an orchestra, reigniting his longtime love for classical music. In 2004, he released Seven, a suite for orchestra which featured the London Philharmonic and marked the start of a series of classical albums. The most recent is simply titled Five. As a member of Genesis, Banks has sold over 21 million albums in the U.S. alone. He received a Prague God Award at the Progressive Music Awards in 2015 and was named among Music Radar's greatest keyboard players of all time in 2011. He was inducted into the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame alongside Genesis bandmates Peter Gabriel, Phil Collins, Steve Hackett, and Mike Rutherford in 2010. Tony, welcome to Songcraft. Thank you very much. Well, you know, you're a member of the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame, uh, but you've also written a number of film scores, and your most recent solo albums are all orchestral pieces within the classical genre. Um, were both classical and pop music influences on you when you were a kid, or did you come to one earlier than the other? Well, I think the first influences I had really was when I was a child, uh, tended to be, um, you know, just with records that my parents and my brothers and sisters and people had in a way. Yeah. Um, tended to be a lot of show music, you know, particularly the Rodgers and Hammerstein musicals of the period. Uh, you know, I was particularly fond of things like The King and I and, and South Pacific and stuff. Um, also, my brother had a few sort of rock and roll records. I mean, I heard things like Rock Around the Clock and... Uh, and there was a version of 16 Tons done by Frankie Lane that I used to really love when I was about seven years old, you know. Huh. So those things were quite a thing. And then uh, the sort of certain amount of classical music was out there, but obviously records being kind of um, 78s in those days, going back a long time, I know, um, <laughs> there was a version of Ravel's Bolero that was done, um, fitted on two sides of, of a 78, so they'd cut it down from its normal sort of, I don't know how long it is, about 12, 15 minutes or something, down to about five minutes. Yeah. Um, which I used to love as well. So, 
you know, yeah, a bit of that. And then the sort of, I was kind of, I think I sort of came to probably to the classical stuff a little bit earlier because that was what was around me when I was younger. Sure. Um, things like the planets, you know, planet suite, and then got into uh, pop music very much, very strongly when I was in about 11 mm. and um, listened to a top 10 over here, which had um, Cliff Richard with the Young Ones was number one of the charts and Elvis Presley, Rockahula Baby was number two, I think. Mm. So it was kind of like I came and that was sort of when I really got started and fanatical about pop music. Wow. Yeah, yeah. Well, you know, we're going to dive deeper into your most recent album, Five, in a bit, but let's go back to your earliest days as a songwriter. And the first single released by Genesis was The Silent Sun. Uh, it came out in early 1968 and was written by you and Peter Gabriel, uh, who was the band's lead singer at the time. Baby, you feel so That song obviously has a different vibe than where Genesis was headed in the 1970s, but talk about how you approached the songwriting process in those earliest days while you were still a teenager. Well, that's probably about the only time in our whole career when we actually tried to write a song to sort of to fit um, kind of something we thought might be a hit. I mean, we're mm. kind of like, uh, we were only 17, and um, we got the interest of a, of a producer over here, a chap called Jonathan King, with sort of bits and pieces we'd done. Uh, through a tape, an early tape, but he was starting to lose interest in us. So Peter and I actually sat down and decided to try and write a song which was sort of similar to sort of songs he, he liked. He was a big fan of the, the Bee Gees of that period, who'd done things like Massachusetts, I suppose, was that big hit at the time. And um, so we sat down and wrote a sort of slightly Bee Gees-ish kind of song, and Peter did his best, um, you know, Barry Gibb impression. <laughs> uh, to sort of, and the whole, that was the whole approach, really. I mean, in many ways, and I hear, hear it back now, and it sounds to me like it could easily have been a hit. And oh. I think, in many ways, a great thing it wasn't, because I don't think, I think our career would have been short and very sweet and mm. uh, completely different if it had been a hit. Well, after you spent some time studying at Sussex University, uh, Genesis kind of reconvened in 1969, and you guys released uh, a second album the following year called Trespass. And tracks like The Knife are where we begin to hear some early examples of the, the prog rock aesthetic that would guide the band in the coming years. I understand that you guys would, would sometimes write and, and rehearse like just all day long during that era. Talk about the, the dynamic of, of writing songs in the context of that kind of collaborative context in those pre-Phil Collins years when Genesis was a, a five-piece group. Well, when we came together to write the, the, um, the Trespass album and a few other songs we did at the same time, we started off really as a sort of starting point so were songs that kind of we'd sort of written um, a bit as individuals before that, all, were almost t together, little bits and pieces, you like. I mean, the knife started off as a piece uh, which combined one piece of pieces, one piece of mine, um, 
what became sort of the verse part, if you like, the first sort of three or four minutes of it, which somebody had written on its own. Hmm. And then when we came to, you know, into the rehearsal room and we decided we wanted to try and take things a little bit further, we started doing lots of improvisations and all sorts of things. And we had a version of The Knife at that time, which was about 25 minutes long, wow. which was um, probably pretty boring, actually, but it had a lot of <laughs> other bits in it. But it includes all the bits you, you, that are there now. Yeah. And yeah. when we came to sort of doing it, it was a little bit... The idea of doing a slightly tongue-in-cheek protest song, which was sort of Peter's idea, really. He wrote a lyric that was kind of supposed to be a little bit... You know, it wasn't supposed to be taken too seriously. And then we had all the bit in the middle with the We Are Only Wanting Freedom, mm-hmm. sort of trying to, you know, sort of build up, which I thought was actually quite exciting, you know. Yeah. Um, but it was, wasn't, it, was, it was called The Knife originally because um, its working title was The Knife. And it was supposed to be a bit like sort of... Um, it had the sort of that bouncy rhythm that... Uh, the knife had 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 on Rondo, their version of Rondo, yeah. and uh, so that's sort of kind of where it started. We're big fans of the knife at that stage, and although that particular piece isn't ultimately very like the knife, it it um, that's kind of where it started, I suppose. Mm. And some of the other pieces on that are very similar. I mean, the Visions of Angels was a song written by Anthony Phillips uh, originally, and then we kind of extended it in the big middle section yeah. the chord sequence. I had this chord sequence put it in the middle to kind of extend the piece, I suppose. And we, we it worked similarly on, on all the other pieces, really. Huh. Well, you know, in, in 1971, uh, Genesis released the Nursery Crime album with a lineup that now included Phil Collins on drums with Peter Gabriel in the lead vocalist slot. You know, one of the classic songs from that era is The Musical Box, and it's a nearly 11-minute masterpiece on which I understand you're playing 12-string acoustic guitar. Obviously, you were also experimenting with various keyboard sounds, and, and we know you very much as a keyboardist, but in, in what ways do the, the instrument in your hands uh, shape your approach to writing, whether you've got a guitar or the keys? Well, a lot of the reason I used guitar on some of the early pieces, and I did it on a few of them, really. I mean, that was Musical Box and the early part of Supper's Ready, I suppose, the best examples. But I used it quite a few times, so really to keep my hands off the keyboard, actually, <laughs> because keyboards have a certain effect on, on a song, they're sort of thick and they, they kind of produce, take it in a certain direction. Yeah. I used to write, like writing things on guitars because I didn't always know quite what I was writing. Hmm. And you tended to write, I tend to write simpler on a guitar, you know, just the nature of the instrument tends to make you a little bit simpler, you know, you don't, we haven't got sort of ten fingers for a start to sort of play <laughs> big chords with all these extra notes in and stuff. So I, I used to enjoy doing that, and sometimes it was just sort of fun, really, to be the three or four, with three of us, I mean, at that stage, well, originally with Ant and then later with Steve, obviously, um, used to just play guitars, the three of us playing together, and you get quite a nice effect. And, hmm. and so we, when we were doing that, I mean, the, the basis of, of um, the musical box, the, what you might call the very first part, was a chord sequence, really, that, that um, Mike had come up with um, when he was working with Ant. And then we sort of developed that, and little guitar bits were added by... Well, it was written before Steve joined the band, to be honest, so it, it, the other bits in it were kind of mainly from me, I suppose, and, and a, even a little bit left over from Anthony Phillips' days, actually. Mm-hmm. And then we sort of like, you know, the idea of going a bit further and putting a couple of solos in and expanding it. And the bit I'm most proud of on that, actually, was the um, the final part, which starts off with mm-hmm. She's a Lady. And Mike had these, just these two chords he was playing, um, and I started playing this chords on top of it. 
and it sort of suddenly became something else, really. But then Peter started singing on top of it and produced, I think, what was, you know, that final um, minute or two, two or three minutes of Musical Box is, is, you know, certainly one of the strongest things we did from that era. Hmm. Again, very simple chords, actually. Um, but just just had a real excitement about it. What's interesting, you talk about getting your hands off the keyboard, and and then um, everything that you were saying in regards to that song was kind of about the chord sequence, and it almost seems like um, taking that approach with the guitar would allow the song to be a little more chordally driven, and then maybe let the vocals handle the melody rather than starting with a, an instrumental melody, which might kind of take up a lot of that space. Yeah, we don't tend to to use it wasn't so much instrumental melodies. I mean, it, I, you know, we, it was more just the fact that I think. I think it was a sound texture thing more than anything with that. And, uh, you know, and sometimes, we, as I said, I mean, probably getting on to the next album, Foxtrot, really, but the, um, the opening part of the musical of Supper's Ready was something I'd written on guitar, this called a chord sequence I had that I thought sounded really good. And when I played it to, to Mike originally, and then he learned it at the same time, and when we played it to the rest of the group together, um, and we, we, I, the, where I showed it to Mike was in this incredible echoey room that was in some, we were playing some teacher's training college up in north of England. We, we were in a changing room, you know, and it had a very a wonderful acoustic, and the two of us playing together just sounded fantastic, you know. Wow. Uh, and so I was always felt I'd stay just playing guitar on that, uh, for the reasons I said before, yeah. because it sounded quite good enough without any kind of keyboards, and then the idea of developing the song after that, um, bringing in more and more. Um, we always used to we used to quite like doing songs that started small and got big. You know, that was right. one of those. You mentioned um, you know Supper's Ready, which is a 23 minute song from the Foxtrot album in 1972, and that's where we really start seeing more experimentation with with time signatures and and new sounds. We see. Peter Gabriel getting into the elaborate stage costumes and, and Genesis really becoming more widely known as this well-respected prog rock band. Um, and, and, you know, the, the train kind of kept rolling. As a result of the recognition, we see Genesis scoring its first charting single in the UK with I Know What I Like the following year. Um, and that particular song, you know, features a, a, a Mellotron to kind of imitate the sound of, of a lawnmower. Time for lunch. Bum da dum de dum. When the sun beats down and I lie on the bench, I can always hear them talk. There's always been a hello. Jacob, wake up, we got to tidy your room now. And then Mr. Lewis wasn't the time that he was out on his own. That's something that literally would have been impossible to do just a few years earlier. So, you know, we, we kind of talked about the, the instrument in your hand guiding the songwriting process, but in what ways has, has technology shaped your songwriting process over the years? Well, I think it's always been a very important part about it. I mean, you know, often when, because over the years after that, obviously, and everything, you, you get, a, you know, there used to be a new instrument out every year or two, or at least every time we got to a writing session, there seemed to be new instruments. Hmm. Um, and, you know, I always found that the sort of, that the instrument would kind of write a song for me almost the first time I played it because it would have sounds on it that I hadn't come across before. And, and you, you know, you would sort of, you would kind of use it in a different kind of way, I suppose. Um, I mean, if you go back to the very first, uh, obviously you had the Mellotrons, which, which were, you know, very important for things like Watcher of the Skies from, um, from, from Foxtrot. Then, and then obviously when the first early synthesizers, the first synthesizer I really used at all extensively was the ARP Pro Soloist, which was featured quite extensively on, on the Selling Them by the Pound album, particularly on the song Cinema Show. 
Mm. He gave me a sort of um, having you know, had to play solos either on an organ or on a piano or fuzz piano, which I used to use a bit, which I used to obviously on musical box. It's um, it just gave you many, many much more range of sound and stuff, and you could do, you know, you could just you could do lots of different kinds of things. And I got quite into this. You know, Mike is very good at setting up a groove, if you like, of just mm. playing one one sort of riff for a long time. Yeah. And and I would play on top of that often, so I provide all my own chords and kind of melody lines and everything, and see how far away I could go. And if I went too far away from his riff, then he'd change a few notes on the riff in order to make it fit. You know. <laughs> but yeah. I, we used to do a lot of that. Um, the Apocalypse in Nine Eight, obviously being one of the best bits, I think, and then a Miss Cinema show, and then many, many things after that. So it's a sort of. There's no doubt that the instruments do sort of do quite a bit. I mean, I was very keen on the uh, the Prophet. The Prophets, the Prophet Five in particular, which I used a lot, obviously, on yeah. the next few albums and stuff. So yeah, yeah everything everything has an effect, I think. Hmm. Well, Peter Gabriel departed the band in 1974, and then Phil Collins debuted as the lead singer on Trick of the Tail. And the previous Genesis records, they credited the songs to the whole band, but this is the first time we see songs credited to individual band members or, or pairings of band members, as opposed to everyone, you know, sharing equal billing. Did changing the voice that would deliver the songs change the process of preparing songs for the album? Not particularly. I think we, I think we all got a little bit fed up with the fact that when Peter was with the band, that they, they got to the stage by the time the final album, that everyone thought he wrote everything, and we just watched him, you know. And I think we found that a little frustrating. So I think we thought, why not just do it now? Who actually writes the songs, mm. rather than trying to pretend everybody wrote everything? I mean, you know, there are songs that. You know, I mean, the prime example is something like Third the Fifth, which I pretty much wrote on my own, you know, but, but it was a band song, you know. I mean, yeah. and uh, that in some ways was, was quite good because it meant that you sort of, no one had a sort of stronger feeling. No one cared what was released as a single or what got heavier promotion or anything like that. So that was quite good in that sense. But, you know, by the time we released um, Trick of the Tail, we were a little bit older and more able, I think, to sort of to take that. So it just ended up that on that album, you know, that we, we divided it up between how we wrote the songs, and and, uh, and we, we carried on that way for about three or four albums before we went back, of course, later on to to, to credit into the whole group again. But that was, that period of time, you know, we, the songs were pretty much written by the individuals, I suppose, and then some songs would be arranged by the group um, to a greater extent than others, and I think where that took place, you tended to credit, you know, the other, everybody a bit. Yeah, yeah. Well, your first charting single as a songwriter in the U.S. came with Follow You, Follow Me, which fell just shy of the top 20 in 1978, and, and that, of course, was credited to you and, and Mike and Phil. You guys were just beginning what would be your most commercially successful period with with Genesis as a trio, um, and this was also an era when you guys would would shift into a much more kind of pop oriented direction. So, obviously, you know you're all evolving musically, but when you have multiple writers in the mix, how do you kind of navigate the process of evolving creatively together? You know, just in terms of making decisions about the direction of the music. 
Well, I think at the time of um, when we did Follow You, Follow Me, it was the album and then there were three, uh, at which point, you know, that particular album, funnily, it may seem strange to other people, but Phil was probably at his most distant from the group at that period, hmm. and most of the songs on that are written by Mike and I. I mean, there's two or three groups that are songs that are credited to everybody, but even those, like Follow You, Follow Me, started off very much with sort of Mike and I, I think. And um, it, it's, you know, so it ended up sort of having a certain quality for that reason, whether you like it or not. I mean, some people don't, you know... Some people really like that album. Other people find it more difficult because it is a little bit different, really. I think Phil was starting to find his own voice a little bit after that. Obviously, he then started to write the songs, which later became uh, his face value, um, and uh, quite a few songs because he he just split with his first wife, and he was I don't know he, he went through quite a creative period, and, it, and we used two of his songs obviously on, on one of the albums coming up. Yeah. Um, so at this point in time, you know, it was kind of. Uh, you know, it was there was quite a lot of stuff written, sort of individually, I suppose. Yeah. yeah. Hmm. Well, you know, you mentioned you know Phil doing his solo stuff, but 1978 is the year that we see you stretching out to do some solo projects outside of Genesis. Um, you created the soundtrack for a British horror film called The Shout with your Genesis bandmate Mike Rutherford, which included From the Undertow, and that's a song that then popped up on your debut solo album, A Curious Feeling, the following year. Having a creative outlet outside the band provide you with new opportunities to express yourself as a writer and composer. Well, I, th- I mean, I would like to have done more of that at that particular stage, but you know, timing—we didn't really have much time off from anything else. Originally, to do the, because Phil was having, as I said before, having trouble with his marriage, his and his attempts to save it, it gave us a little bit of a hiatus in the, mm. the band's career. And Mike and I both decided at that point, rather than trying to sort of force Phil back to do stuff he, when he wasn't quite ready for it that we'd do solo albums at that point, which is when I did The Curious Feeling. But my, uh, the, the, the shout was a quite interesting thing, really, because I had this piece of music that I'd originally written as, a, as an introduction to the song Undertow, hmm. and which we decided not to use because, you know, they, the feeling was the band felt that I got enough introductions already <laughs> to get on some of these songs, <laughs> like uh, Burning Rope, which had quite an extensive introduction. So I had this bit left over, and what I did was, because the film was quite spooky, there was a little bit in this um, introduction, just a small bit, that I thought I turned the whole piece around and made what was the just a little link piece into the main part and used what was originally the main part as just a link in the middle. Uh, and I, I think it made it much better, actually, as well. Mm-hmm. And so I wrote it for the, uh, the, the shout, and, and, you know, it was, it was used okay in the film, but it could have been better. And I, I just thought it was a, re- a really good place to start from, if you like, for a, for a, for a record. And I wanted to, as I said, I'd written... I had what was one of my most creative periods, I think, then, of writing lots and lots of stuff. Yeah. And the idea of developing um, a piece, you know, something, a concept album, if you like, based, uh, starting off from, from the undertow, which has quite a strong atmospheric quality about it, yeah. um, was what I decided to do. Well, in 1981, Genesis scored a hit in the U.S. with no reply at all, um, another song credited to all three of you.
at that point, you, Mike, and Phil had, had each released a solo album, and, and as a band, you were, at that point, really you know, credited as producers as well for the first time. How had your individual experiences outside the band strengthened Genesis once you reconvened? Well, I think we all picked up sort of different, you know, things. I think it, it, also you're gaining confidence a bit, I suppose. You know, you, you know how to do all the stuff. And I think when we came back to Genesis, the three of us together, it was kind of quite relaxing because we could sort of like, we, we could trust the other people and they could take over the roles they'd kind of always had in a way. And you could rely on them in a way. Whereas when you're doing a solo album, obviously everything just depends on you. If you're not doing any work, then no one else is, no one's doing any work. Whereas <laughs> right. in a group, you know, if one guy can be taking a day when there's not much is happening, the other two can do good stuff. And we found that, you know, we used to fire each other up a bit, really. So when particularly in those last three or four albums we did as a, as a trio, we kind of like would just go into the, um, you know, into the studio, really, and improvise and just see what happened. Hmm. Trying, in fact, particularly on, you know, the slightly later albums, of going in there with nothing prepared at all hmm. um, and, and just seeing what happened, really. And then, hmm. you know, that was quite an exciting experience because you sort of didn't know what was going to happen and suddenly you'd find something emerging yeah. out of your sort of rather random playing. And, <laughs> and to be honest, a pretty bad sound most of the time as well. You know, you hear something that was quite good and, and then we think, well, that's good, let's work on that, you know, and then yeah. you, you could write a song and it was, it was fun to do that. Hmm. Well, Genesis scored its first top 10 hit in the U.S. with That's All in 1983. love to hear the process of, of creating that song that that's such a focused sounding song and i'm curious did that come from that same sort of experimentation or, or was there more of a focused approach to that one no it was it was it was that experimentation what actually happened on that it was sort of i had it was early days of the emulator and its ability to record sort of you know sample sounds and mike was fiddling around in the room making as he normally does fairly random nasty noises anyhow i recorded <laughs> about a minute of what he did um and then I played it, for some reason I just sort of, I tried playing, you know, because with the emulator you could record a sound and play it back, then you could, obviously playing different notes would play it at half speed and all the rest of it. And I tried playing um, it at half speed, some of the stuff you played, and most of it didn't sound very good, but there's one little riff that just came out, I thought, that's a great riff, you know, I can, well, it sort of, it hints at a great riff, put it like that. And so I just sat down on the piano and, and played sort of what I was hearing and then developed it as a little thing. And then... You know, it was Phil's idea to make it kind of very sort of, um, you know, the particular rhythmic approach, which is sort of like Rocky Raccoon, I suppose, for mm. people's mm. song. You know, that kind of, kind of yeah. yeah, bouncy, keep it quite simple. And I, I thought it was such a good little riff. I wanted to try and really keep myself simple on the song and just use that riff really as the basis of the whole thing and just have one little change with that sort of, you know, the, the secondary bit, um, which is, you know, slightly sort of just an interesting chord, really. Yeah. And then to, so you could then come back to the main thing. So... It was a question of trying to keep it very, very simple, and then Phil wrote, a, you know, a really sort of like simple lyric on it, which, which I think works really well. So yeah, we were pleased with that song. Yeah. Well, in 1984, you released your second solo project, The Fugitive, which is um, the only album you've released where you handled all the lead vocal duties yourself, um, including the debut single, This Is Love. Now I stare out on the traffic in the city. 
writing process different for you when you know it will be your voice rather than someone else's voice on the recording? Well, certainly when I tried starting when I started singing, you know, I realized that I was going to have to keep it a bit, keep it a bit simpler. <laughs> I mean, I you know, over the years as a, as, a, as a writer, I didn't really mind what I put Peter or Phil through. You know, I'd say, well, you can sing that. No, you know, I don't care. <laughs> right. And then when I had to do it myself, I realized, you know, and also I have quite limited uh, ability as a singer. So you kind of do things that you felt sounded okay with your voice. Hmm. I mean, I think that album actually taught me more about songwriting than any album I've ever done because hmm. you know when you sing it yourself you realize what, what it's all about, really, and you're trying to project it. And, you know, it's some, there are moments on that that are okay. It's not, you know, it's not, it's not a fantastic singing performance, but it, it's something about you, a person singing their own songs that's quite nice as well, I think. Yeah. And um, I sort of found a way of singing that kind of worked, and it was, it was great fun to do. And, I mean, I, over the years I did sing a, two or three more songs, but, you know, I, other people, so many other people out there have so much better voices than me, that, and as a songwriter, therefore, I want to have the best, possible singers on it you know and, mm -hmm. and i'm afraid that isn't me you know but um it was certainly fun to do and it was you know it, i don't know some people like you know some people like it a lot so yeah yeah it was, wasn't a waste of time <laughs> <laughs> well uh, genesis uh reached its commercial peak in the u.s with the invisible touch album in 1986 it yielded five top five singles from the title track all the way through the ballad in too deep um, you know, that album to me, it, it seems like so many of, of the best parts of who you guys are came together in so many of the songs. You had these stretches of kind of dark, you know, dreamy instrumentation, and then these, these really well-crafted direct-to-radio kind of things. Um, you know, talk about the creation of those songs and, and kind of, you know, why you think it was at that stage that you guys found your greatest success in the U.S., and, and did that represent to you kind of a creative peak as well? I wouldn't, it's not really, I mean, I, I don't see it as a creative peak. I think it was, it, was, it was fascinating for us in a way that we managed to do it. I mean, obviously, Phil, by that point, had become, you know, a pretty regular fixture in the singles charts, which obviously did us no harm, because it meant that people, the songs tended to get played, you know, if nothing hmm. else. But I was fascinated by how some of the songs evolved. I mean, you know, uh, the one that really always amazes me is Land of Confusion, because yeah. when we were writing it, it was originally kind of a big rather big amorphous mass of a song you know it kind of had lots of bits and it went all over the place and stuff hmm. and we sort of slowly honed it down and honed it down and ended up with this you know what i think is, is a perfect pop song really just it, it just kind of it's, it's simple direct and then it carries a lot of emotion with it you know did it was very unlike what you might think a person you might have thought someone sat down and sort of went did these bits and pieces straight off but it wasn't it was very much a sort of honing down process um in a way all the songs to some extent were on that although some of them had a slightly simpler basis i mean the song invisible touch itself you know mike had this guitar riff which became the basis for the for the piece and you sort of knew with that riff that you had something pretty strong to go on you know mm. and it's just a matter of writing you know some verse chords and stuff and a bit of a melody and and you, you knew where you were going with that one. Yeah. I mean, the, obviously, the longer pieces on that, which Tonight Tonight and um, Domino, which are much more um, 
atmospheric pieces, I suppose, particularly, I mean, you mentioned the sort of dark and instrumental bit. I mean, that middle part of um, Tonight, Tonight, Tonight was, was a sort of favorite bit of mine, really. Yeah. I mean, Mike and Phil had this little sort of rhythm thing going, and they were playing it, and I just started playing these almost um, orchestral classical type things on top of it, really. Because uh, back in that, those days, you know, uh, you started early days of having sounds that could sound like strings and oboes yeah. and the rest of it. And so I used those within that context. And, you know, we've got the very sort of definite rock basis to the whole thing, but with these kind of rather, these floaty sort of orchestral sounds on top, which I think is a very effective kind of combination. I was, I was very pleased with that bit. So, yeah, it was a good combination of, of, of bits and pieces, you know, some, some heavy, some not so heavy. Well, I, I remember hearing that record, you know, as a kid, and, and there were moments on the record that, that scared me. You know, there were, there were parts of certain songs, you know, tonight, 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 it'd be like, you know, just, just get me out of here. You know, those kind of things, almost like a, like a paranoia, which I think was uh, really well reflected in, in the sonics as well. You know, and then on the other side, there would be these songs that, that felt, you know, like love songs or, you know, Invisible Touch felt kind of fun to me. Um, you know, when it came to writing the lyrics in particular, um, were you guys collaborating on, on that stuff as well? Or, or no, we tended to, to divide the lyrics up between us a bit. I mean, you, normally, you know, he got to the stage, I think, where Phil was probably the best, what you might call, pop lyric writer. So he wrote the lyrics to Invisible Touch. Mm. Um, Mike wrote the lyric to, um, to Land of Confusion, as it happens. And, um, I mean, I, I always tended to get the heavy songs, you know, so I tended to write the lyrics for sort of things like Domino, you know, because I, I, I always like to have a bit of a, you know, I, it always takes me longer to say stuff mm. than it does the other guys. So I was quite happy to have a slightly more elaborate song which could sort of go, you know, we, we, basically all the music was written before I wrote the lyric, but yeah. it sort of suggested certain things to me and, and you know, it gave me some ideas. And so, um, you know, then the other songs were divided up. And as I said, Phil, something like Into Deep is very much a Phil Collins kind of lyric, yeah. if you like. Yeah. Um, but I mean, that was when we were writing the song, it's quite interesting thing, that one, because I did purposely sat down when I was writing the, the, the chords to that, right, sort of just, there's certain things that Phil's voice always sounds very nice on, and I had certain chord sequence, chord changes. I thought, I know he'll sound good on top of this, really, whatever mm. he thinks. Mm. And so he kind of sang, you know, various melody lines on the top, and we sort of whittled it down to the final thing. And, um, you know, it sounds, it's a, it's just a, a nice, a nice, you know, nice, nice love song. Well, we mentioned the soundtrack to The Shout earlier, but you did several more films, uh, including The Wicked Lady with Faye Dunaway from 1983, um, Starship from 1984, and the Kevin Bacon film Quicksilver from 1986, which featured the single Shortcut to Somewhere. Um, talk about scoring a film where you're sort of jumping in and supporting someone else's um, vision as opposed to doing your own projects. I guess another way to ask that question is, you know, do you enjoy coming into a project where you have defined parameters to work within in this case you know uh, uh, the visuals sort of variable experiences with all my films really i mean when i did the wicked lady i was actually right in the middle of doing um the fugitive album and and um michael winner wanted a, an orchestral score which i was fine and, and so really i had an orchestrator because at that stage i had no real experience with orchestras and i had an orchestra hmm. called christopher palmer i worked with and and i basically made sort of up and went through the thing playing stuff on piano and playing it to him and then he'd orchestrate it. I mean, I had a, um, a melody that I thought, you know, which I, I thought was quite nice that I played to Michael Winner and he, he loved the melody and he said it's fantastic. So we used that as a sort of basis for, the, for the, a lot of the um, soundtrack. 
And it was very, you know, in many ways, apart from the fact I was a bit time-hassled, I found that quite an easy experience. I was sort of writing stuff, and the guy would come back, and you'd do this and that. And, and it ended up with, was, you know, a score that I think was rather better than the film, <laughs> which I'm allowed to say. <laughs> and, um, and then the other two were a bit different, really. I mean, the Starship thing, I mean, I was asked to, you know, the guy, it was a low-budget thing, and I thought it would be fun to do. I, hadn't got, I wasn't doing anything else at the time, and so I wrote, you know, quite extensively for it. And I enjoyed writing the music for that, but it was kind of like, you know, in the end, it wasn't used terribly well, and the film is, is pretty atrocious, I think. I think it's rated as one of the worst films of all time, which is, you know, I think is a, bit, is, is a little harsh, but it's not, it's, not, it's not a great film, I have to say. Um, and the music was, you know, however good the music was, it wasn't going to salvage it, really. And I just did the whole thing at home with that. I mean, I just did it, it was all done with just me, me and a piano and, uh, and yeah. my sort of set up at home. The Quicksilver thing was a little, I, that was writing by committee. I mean, I wrote stuff and then I, you know, did um, phone calls, you know, um, conference calls with people. And, and you get guys that, <laughs> it was very funny really. I did one piece that I thought was good. I had a sound for one of the, the actors and, and, and it was great because I, Talk, the first guy I talked to, it's great. I love that sound. It's really good. It really conjures it up well. I mean, and they went through it. And then the final guy, I think, was probably the director or producer or something. I said, "Sounds like a fart to me." <laughs> <laughs> I kind of, I then had to abandon this thing that I built a lot of the sound around. Right. And stuff. And then, uh, like, That's not what you want. Then, <laughs> the problem was that after that, then the guy suddenly, you know, the director, I think it was, presumably, he wanted hits and stuff, and. Mm. I know I gave him shortcut to somewhere which he didn't obviously didn't rate as a sort of hit to be released. So he, he brought in um Georgia Moroda wrote a song which I think Roger Daughtry sang, um, which was a rather key moment in the thing where I'd written shortcut to somewhere to go. And uh, you know, so it was all a bit sour after that really and the film hmm. you know, again it, Kevin Bacon has done a lot of films and one has to be totally honest and say this is not one of his best. Um <laughs> Again, I don't know, you see, maybe the, the, the one common denominator with all this stuff is me, of course, that's the trouble. <laughs> it could all be me. Um, but, you know, I, I, I don't mind doing it. It's just, it's just you are sort of, the whim of the director is, is, can be a little bit, because, um, you know, if you think a thing's good and they don't, then, of course, you've got to, it's them that matters and everything. Yeah. And then when they're trying to get across ideas, they, they, they sometimes are not very good at getting it across and you get the wrong end of the stick. Hmm. Um, but, so that's why I found the, the Wicked Lady the most fun to do because Michael Winner was, you know, for he's not he's a, you know, was a certain kind of chap. But um, he was very enthusiastic about everything I gave him, and and he was, you know, very supportive. Yeah, you know, talking uh, about some more of your solo projects in 1989, you released an album under the band name Bank Statement. Uh, before putting out another solo record still in 1991, and that was followed up then in 1995 by another band concept called Strictly Inc., which featured Wang Chung lead singer Jack Hughes. As a songwriter, do you find yourself setting aside certain ideas and saying, this really feels like something that's a Genesis idea versus oh, this feels like it might be something I want to explore more in another band context or just as a Tony Banks project? Not really. I mean, pretty much whatever I had around at the time would go into the next project, you know, which is kind of sort of fairly random in a way, because, you know, I'd do a song on a Genesis album that would become a sort of big hit, you know, and then I'd do a song on a solo album that didn't get noticed at all. <laughs> so it was kind of like, it's it kind of good for me in a way. It kind of kept, kept, me, kept me real, if yeah. you like. The only song I think I probably wrote which was never, ever considered as a Genesis thing would have been the song Island in the Darkness, which was on the Strictly Inc. album. It was a 15-minute piece, and by that stage, the other two wouldn't have let me get away with something of that length. <laughs> I wanted to do something a bit more extensive. Um, a lot of the various passages in that, sort of some piano passages, just are almost improvised. 
mm. the introduction and there's a little bit in the middle. And then there's a big guitar solo where I, you know, got Daryl to come in and play, which was, you know, intentionally recalling a little bit some of the stuff I did in the early days, like Surf for Fifth. And, uh, and I think it's a really strong piece myself. And unfortunately, it was on an album that didn't really attract much attention. Uh, mm. Jack, you know, Jack was great. I mean, Jack Hughes was, was great to work with, actually. And, uh, but it's just one of those things, I think, at the time it came out, you know, nothing much happened with it. It was at that point that I felt, you know, maybe I would stop doing solo albums, really, because I just thought there's no point. You know, each one, each, even if I thought it was great, nobody, if, you know, you have to be honest about it. I mean, if people, if you do, it doesn't matter what you think of it. If other people don't seem to rate it, then you have to accept that, really. Hmm. And I found it a bit dispiriting, putting hmm. these things out to, to, yeah. to that sort of response. So I sort of... I decided not to do any more of that, and we still had the um, the Genesis album calling on stations to come, which you're going to come to in, in your little biography. I, <laughs> Indeed. I, feel it, I feel it coming. Well, Genesis released the We Can't Dance album in 1991, which featured the hit singles I Can't Dance and Hold On My Heart. Um, and you guys were bona fide international pop superstars at that point. you know. But the, the Genesis of that era bore virtually no resemblance to the Genesis that recorded Firth of Fifth in the 1970s. And, and you know, the, the prog rock fans of the Peter Gabriel era often accused the later incarnation of the band of, of selling out, while the, you know, pop fans sometimes had trouble kind of relating to the theatricality of the earlier material. Um, and just looking back at this amazing body of work and thinking about all of the songs that you guys were writing from, you know, the late 60s all the way up through the 90s with Genesis... Is there a common thread that you could point to that ties everything together from a songwriting perspective as uniquely Genesis? Well, there is to me. I'm sort of inside it all. So, I mean, the approach we took on all the stuff was, was much the same. I think, you know, obviously as, as years went by, you know, some things just you felt you're repeating yourself a little bit. When we did the album, Duke was, I see in many ways, the, the final, it was the changeover album, the last sort of prog album in a way, which also had some, you know, some suggestions of, um, of the more poppy thing that was to come really, in a way. I think we just felt we'd repeated ourselves. We decided quite consciously on the album Abacab that came afterwards to, to leave out some of the things we've been doing. Hmm. Um, but I think we sort of, you know, and we mentioned before things like Tonight Tonight and Domino, and obviously we also include Home by the Sea uh, and things on We Can't Dance, something like Fading Lights, which, which all kind of have, you know, they're not songs that would be done by a straight-ahead pop band, you know. Yeah. They're, they're things that are sort of, you know, still have some of that element. And, you know, for some people, they were the best tracks, for others, they were the tracks they skipped. But what we found was when we played live, we'd, we'd have bits in, from everywhere, you know. We played, for example, parts of Surf of Fifth right through our career. We played the song um, In the Cage from, from the Lamas on Broadway pretty much from, you know, from 1974 onwards, you know. Um, and we'd do things like we had a very extended... Uh, keyboards on the last tour we did, for example, the extended keyboard solo, basing itself around loads of the solos that I'd done over the years. And then the next song after that was Hold On My Heart. And I think what happened with a lot of people was we always felt that all, you know, all the uh, certain element of the audience went out and had a pee during the, the solo. <laughs> and then the other element of the audience went out on home, Hold On My Heart. Now, right. from the inside it all, I mean, I, I love those songs, both of them, you know, I mean, I, um, Hold On My Heart, it was, it was a great song. And yet it's sort of, you know, some people think of it's a sort of being... You know, I don't know what they think of it as, really. But you've just got to listen to a thing for what it is. Don't want it to be something other than it is, you mm. know. If yeah. you, you know, that's what I think is, is the truth of the matter. Mm. And I think we, you know, I think there was some, there were elements that went through it all, really. But as a writer, you know, I look at it all now as a kind of body of work. And, you know, the, the order it came out in is 
fairly irrelevant. I mean, a lot of people, you know, I'm a big fan of an author like Graham Greene, for example, and yet, you know, you don't really care whether the human factor was written before or after Brighton Rock, even though you <laughs> might know it. You know what I mean? So, and it's, it's they're, they're, they're all valuable in their own way. They're just sort of different, you know. Yeah. And uh, I, you know, who knows? I mean, with, with music in particular, you hear songs at different times and, and you, you do different things. And mm. uh, I was... I was, you know, I mean, it was extraordinary to me we had that success with, with things like Invisible Touch and We Can't Dance. I mean, it, it just came from nowhere as far as I was concerned, oh. you know, never, never anticipated it. And yeah. Suddenly we got, got, we got good at writing short songs, I think. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, you know, there have been so many changes, you know, you can look back over the years and, and you know, whether it be the length of the songs or kind of the aesthetic or the personnel or, or whatever it is, um, you know, Genesis is a is a band that certainly no one can accuse of of being static, and um, you and and Mike Rutherford are the only common threat. You know, the the mainstays from you know the the entire run of Genesis. Phil Collins, of course, left in in 1996, and and you and Mike continued with uh, Ray Wilson on vocals for the Calling All Stations album in 1997, and you know, think of singles like Congo, and obviously. That's a song that's credited to you and uh, and to Mike, just just the two of you. But talk a little bit about that process of. Um, c- continuing on after Phil, and then eventually deciding ultimately to disband. Well, look, the Calling All Stations album was sort of, I think we, I sort of, to some extent, feel we went in slightly with the wrong approach. I mean, I thought if we were going to carry on, that we, sh- we could do some songs like we did that one, which is the two of us writing together and improvising a bit like we did with Phil, but without Phil, if you know what I mean. But I think we also needed individually written songs as well, because I think that to get the variety. And I think Mike was rather keen just to do it all one way. Hmm. And I felt, you know, I wasn't actually that keen to do the album in the first place. I thought that, you know, Phil's gone. I think let's, let's just knock it on the head, call it a day. I mean, when, it's going to be very difficult to do something without Phil. He's become such a star and all that. But Mike was quite keen. And we said, well, let's just, let's just try. You know, we tried yeah. and we came up with some pieces we, we thought were, were good, you know, as you do. And then we recorded it, looked for a singer. We found Ray, who was a really good singer, and, and put it out. And then we... You know, when we put the play the record to the record company and everyone, they all say, "Oh, it's fantastic! It's going to be a big hit and all the rest of it." You know, and so they started arranging tours on that basis. And you know, I think I was said to my manager at the time, "I said, look, we have no idea what's going to happen. Let's just go in there, to play a couple of theaters, and see what happens." You know, and of course, we put this tour together, and we we're playing quite an extensive American tour in in some of the bigger places and everything. And of course. You know, where we'd played, I think it was in, uh, the best example, I was it was Columbus, Ohio, when the last tour we did with Phil, I think we sold to about 80,000 people or something, I think, playing a stadium. And after about two weeks of tickets being on sale, uh, when we were going to go back there, I think we'd sold 20 tickets. Mm-hmm. So we rose at that point that this was not going to be the thing to do. So we had to, we completely cancelled the American tour on that wow. completely. And we ended up doing the European tour because we'd already, you know, committed to it yeah. and everything. And it was good. I mean, I think we, it was great fun. And we had a really good drummer in Nia Sidiaku and, and also obviously Ray was great. And, and we had a, a guitarist, Anthony Drennan. It was quite fun. Mike and I felt like, you know, with the old men, with kind of the young boys. And, <laughs> and it, was, it was just an interesting experience. And, 
I felt after we'd done the one album, fun enough, Mike and I reversed positions. I thought, well, we've done one. We sort of learned a little bit how to work in this particular unit. Let's do another one. Hmm. But then Mike, I think, was worried about the fact, and maybe he was right. He said, well, you know, this album, you know, people, it didn't, it sold okay, you know, but I think a lot of people bought it on spec. Yeah. And I don't feel, they, you know, it went down that well. And therefore, perhaps we should just call it a day. And, and you know, I wasn't that against it, to be honest. I thought maybe that's time to do it. You know, it was a pretty depressing experience, you know, having to pull all those dates and everything. But yeah. it was, um, you know, once we, once we actually did the tour, it was quite fun. Well, in the 2000s, you sort of returned to some of your early listening roots and, and became a classical artist uh, with the album Seven, A Suite for Orchestra, and that was recorded with the London Philharmonic Orchestra. Tell us how that project came about. Well, at the end of, the, after the, the, the calling all stations thing and we decided to knock it on the head, I had the sort of feeling that maybe, I wasn't sure that I just would, would you know, give up music in a sense. I mean, you know, I'd had a fantastic career and I thought perhaps it's just time to go and do something else. But then I sort of remembered doing The Wicked Lady, which I talked about before, and how quite a simple melody had sounded so nice when it was played on an orchestra. So I thought, well, before I concede completely, let's give it a go. Let's, let, let me try and do something with an orchestra, see what happens. And I had two or three pieces around that I thought could, would do well with an orchestra. And then I sat down and tried to write one or two pieces specifically with an orchestra in mind. Um, and the, the, one of the pieces I wrote ended up on the seven album called Black Down. And I thought that this was actually was a, really genuinely a good piece of music in that genre, really. I mean, I was really excited by it. Mm. So I thought to myself, I really want to try this project. So I got, a, got in touch with uh, an arranger, a guy called Simon Hale, who's quite a sort of well-known musician these days. Um, and he helped me to sort of orchestrate these pieces. And then we went in, um, first of all, we went to Abbey Road with a, conductor and the orchestra and we recorded three or four pieces and it sounded awful <laughs> it was very depressing i thought this isn't working at all forget this so i came out of there thinking well that's it I'm, i won't bother and then i you know i was talking with nick davis who's been a long time collaborator of mine in terms of as a producer and things and he he was very encouraging and others were encouraging he said look no we should give this another go so i went back in there again with the london phenomenal orchestra but with a different conductor a guy called mike dixon who kind of one of those guys who, who works a bit in both classical and, um, uh, you know, and in pop, pop worlds. And, and just with much better preparation and knowing more what it is that I wanted. And we got a much better result. I mean, you know, it's, a couple of the pieces don't, don't really sound as good as they should, but some of the others really came alive, I think. And particularly the piece Black Down, which was my, you know, for me was the key to the whole, whole record. Mm. Sounded great. So I was, you know, I felt that was really good. We put it out. And, you know, actually got quite good response and everything. And it, it sold, you know, I mean, in terms of sales, it was vastly more successful than anything I'd done uh, as a solo rock album, you know. So mm. kind of gave me a really incentive to, to carry on. So that's why um, that's sort of one thing led to another. One of, I did others, you know, and yeah. obviously in between all this, we had the Genesis tour. In 2012, you released another classical album called Six Pieces for Orchestra, um, mm. which you've just followed up with your brand new album, Five. And I understand that the, the opening track, Prelude to a Million Years, was actually a, a commissioned work that, that in some ways perhaps kind of kick-started the, the whole project.
yes, that's true. I mean, I, I was asked to do um, uh, to write a piece for the Cheltenham Music Festival over here, which is you know reasonably sort of prestigious thing. I was quite flattered to be asked. Yeah. And um, it was the first time anybody ever asked me to, to write anything for anything, I think, virtually. <laughs> so I kind of, you know, I thought, and I said to the guy, well, how long do you want it to be? He said, well, it can be anything you like, about 15 minutes maybe. So I thought that sounds good because 15 minutes, you know, it's long enough for me to, to get going. Look, I've done that piece, before. I like long pieces, <laughs> as you've noticed. And, uh, and I sort of got a few, quite a few ideas around and I sort of hammered them into shape and produced this piece, which is pretty much as you hear it in terms of structure. Right. Um, we've re- arrangement is quite different from what I did originally. We performed it down at Cheltenham, and you know some bits of it sounded quite nice, and other bits didn't really sound that great. And it made me feel that I wanted to try and take a slightly different approach on this record because you know who knows how many I will ever do. And I wanted to try and get one of these things so that I didn't have those pieces on it where I was regretting that they didn't sound as good as they should. Yeah. So. Um, I decided to take a totally different approach on this, and rather than going in there with an orchestra and recording it like I had done the previous two, that I would do it more like I've done rock records in many ways. So I did uh, demos at home, you know, like I'd done before, but I took a lot more trouble over them and got them very extensively right in terms of all the tempo changes and everything in there, and a large degree of the orchestration as well, yeah. and the piano part, um, so that it was final. And then went into the studio and played all the orchestral parts in a lot of sections. I mean, you know, that sort of, uh, we did the sort of like the cornet on its own, we did the harp on its own, the percussion on its own, and then we did the sort of things like the strings on their own and the brass on their own things. So it kind of put them all onto my demo, so that it kind of, um, taking away obviously all my original sort of samples and things, the only thing that survives really from the original demo is my piano part, mm. which is the part I played then. So the whole thing... I was much more in control of it on this time, and so everything kind of is much more what was in my head, if you like. Yeah. I mean, I had a lot of help from, you know, don't get me wrong, I had the conductor and an orchestra, orchestra orchestrator uh, called Nick Ingman, who helped me quite a bit in terms of, you know, getting it how I wanted, but it was, um, the result is much closer to the, what I've had in my head than any of the other orchestral things have been, apart from maybe Blackdown. Oh. And so I was... Um, I just really wanted to do that one time and just to see how that felt. And, you know, I don't think it sounds, the result doesn't sound like it's done in bits. It sounds totally normal. But when you've got music that's never been heard by anyone, it, it's quite difficult to get an orchestra to play it sort of with the right kind of feeling, you know. It's one thing if they, you're going in there and doing yet another version of sort of Beethoven's Fifth or something. You know, everyone knows roughly how it goes, and so you can, you know, you can do your own interpretation of it, but you know roughly what you're trying to do. Yeah. But with music that's never been released before like this, it's very difficult to get people to totally understand it. And by doing it in this piecemeal way, you can perfect it yourself. You know how you want it to sound, and you just make the orchestra play each bit. Each bit of the orchestra plays exactly how you wanted it. Hmm. So that produces a certain result. You know, I, I think each genre in music kind of has its uh, its rules or its, its, you know, sort of ethic, and you'll have the people that are cheerleaders and naysayers, or whether it's, you know, punk, you know, is that record punk enough, or hip-hop, where people, yeah. you know... Did, did you feel a sense of pressure in sort of coming in as a guy with, with a large body of work in, in the rock world and now saying, okay, I'm going to enter this classical world and, and I want to establish myself as a credible presence. Did you feel a, a pressure there? I think it's, it's very difficult to, to convince people that that's what you are. Um, you know, over here we have, we have two, sort of two main radio stations, uh, one of which is called Classic FM, which is kind of more lightweight and they're quite prepared to sort of to, to countenance people like me 
doing stuff like this, and another one which is called Radio 3, which is very much um, the other way. Mm. And to be honest, I mean, they, I, I get the feeling they won't even listen to anything that comes, doesn't right. come through the right channels. And that's very frustrating, you know, because you just sort of think that there is, even if you want to call it, you can sort of uh, like to dismiss it with sort of words like crossover or whatever, I don't know. You know, it doesn't matter really. I mean, music is music and it deserves a listen, I think. Yeah. And it's, it's become a dif- difficult thing. And I think the classical world, you said people who, you know, how, how it should be defined. I think in the classical world, they all feel it should have come through, you play it live first and you do all that side of it. You don't just put a record out like yeah. I've done. Um, so kind of breaking the rules is not, doesn't particularly help, you know, in a way. You, you know, I've got, I'm lucky that I have a certain number of people who are interested in what I do, kind of, you know, whatever it is, I suppose, in a way. And they help me a lot with getting a reasonable showing in sort of things like charts and everything. But um, once you've got through those, you've got to get through to the next stage of people who are people who, who could like this, who didn't know they would like it. Mm, right. But they've got to hear it somehow. And that, that, that's the real challenge, I think. Yeah, yeah. Well, so your last three albums are seven, a suite for orchestra, six pieces for orchestra, and five, I guess. Uh, would it be presumptuous to assume that the next album might begin with a number four? Well, I have no idea. I didn't <laughs> want this one to begin with five, really, actually. I thought hmm. it was too predictable. The other two were seven and six, and I thought it was fine. I, I really just wanted to call them seven and six. Anyhow, this one ended up with five pieces on it, so I thought I can't really ignore that fact. <laughs> it would be a bit strange. So this time I decided I don't want to give it any other title. I'm just going to call it five, you know, right. so people know roughly where I'm at. And um, who knows next time? If there is a next time, who knows? I might jump a few, you know. Yeah, maybe maybe you'll be a one-man band and you can put out a record called One. Well, yes, one. I'm quite... So I'm really looking forward to Zero, really. <laughs> See what that produces, you know. It's sort of like, um, That's great. An hour of silence, you know. It's quite, quite experimental. <laughs> right, an hour of yeah, silence, yeah. Well, Four minutes, 33 seconds, obviously, is John Cage's most famous yeah, work. Yeah, right, right. Uh, and, of course, it's, that's brilliant, really. I mean, no one really knows any other piece by him at all, apart from that piece. <laughs> and you can hear that any time you want, really. Um, <laughs> it's so, very accessible. You know, yeah, so I don't know. Anyhow, if, who knows? I mean, obviously, the four is a sort of fairly natural kind of um, classical thing. With the, the classical symphony tends to be four right. movements, although they vary. I mean, so who knows if I'd be tempted to do that. Yeah. I don't... At the moment, I haven't got anything planned at all, so I'm not really, you know, I don't know what I'm doing next. But if, if right. anything, I'd see, kind of going to wait to see a little bit, let this one settle and see if we can get a bit more sort of mileage out of it and, and see where it goes. Well, you know, whether people are into classical music or if they're into uh, lean uh, three-minute pop songs, if they're into experimental prog rock, uh, Tony Banks delivers. There is mm. something there is something for every music fan. So, uh, Tony, we really want to uh, thank you for um, sharing your time with us today and, and just kind of walking us through a, a, a quick overview of your very impressive uh, career and all the different things you've done. So um, we really appreciate it. Well, thank you very much. Thanks, as always, for listening and for your support. We'd love to stay connected with you, so please sign up for our email list at songcraftshow.com, like us on Facebook, and follow us on Twitter. Again, you can find us by searching for Songcraft Show, all one word. While Songcraft is available to our listeners at no charge, we ask friends like you to consider becoming a Songcraft patron at patreon.com slash songcraftshow. That's p-a-t-r-e-o-n dot com slash songcraftshow. There you can pledge as little as $2 per month to help Songcraft continue its mission of bringing you great interviews with great songwriters. 
Plus, you'll have the opportunity to access bonus content and get the chance to enjoy unique rewards and experiences as a member. We look forward to getting together again with you for the next episode of Songcraft, Spotlight on Songwriters. 